0: In this particular disease, I think we have to remember that nobody is safe unless until everyone is safe because you cannot live with closed borders. And so if there's disease in some part of the world, sooner or later it's going to catch up.
1: If you're a regular listener to our podcast, you'll have in the last couple of months, heard about how COVID is exposing the cracks in all of our healthcare systems. From showing how poorly provisioned elderly social care is and how that gap is being met by healthcare, to how the problems around antibody testing have shown innovation is uncoordinated and driven by the worst bits of the free market. And how underlying it all, inequality exacerbates everything I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast, I talk to Sumya Nathan, who is the WHO's first Chief Scientist, and ask about how the world's foremost normative body for healthcare is tackling some of these issues. We talk about agenda setting and how the WHO is trying to prioritise neglected areas of research, how they're starting to set standards for evidence driven by public rather than commercial priorities, and how, if and when a vaccine for coronavirus is finally created, they can help it be distributed equitably, rather than to those who have the most money. Here's Sumya Swaminathan. the Office of Chief Scientist is a new one, and that might be a bit surprising, given that WHO is a very scientifically-minded organization. Um, why was it set up, and, and what's your remit in this? What are, you, uh, what are you aiming to achieve?
0: That's a good question. So, you know, when um, the new Director-General, Dr. Ted Ross, took office and brought uh, a, a new team, the idea really was to look at WHO uh, with the lens of being in the 21st century, having been set up 70 years ago, just after the Second World War. The time had come really for WHO to think about not only its relevance, but the way it operates and interacts with member states and with other stakeholders around the world. And to look and see whether our uh, the processes that we use uh, were still fit for purpose. And during the course of a year or so, we identified a number of key processes um, which which really impact on on WHO's work that needed to be examined and and probably rebooted. And, And so we identified about 13 of them, high priority ones. Now, during the course of that transformation, what happened was there was a lot of internal discussions with staff across the organization about how do we make ourselves more relevant, more effective, more efficient in today's world when there are a number of other organizations in global health, and that member states also have very varying needs and requirements and resources and capacity. So during those discussions, it became obvious that you needed some kind of central mechanism and a, and a resource internal resource that would do two things the first was really to stay ahead of the curve and that is to anticipate what uh, is coming down the pipeline maybe being able to look beyond 5 to 10 years ahead and and identify the technological and other uh, advances that are likely to impact health and then to be able to anticipate and respond to those challenges, because every technological breakthrough and innovation comes with both good and bad, in the sense that it can be, of course, uh, harnessed for public health, for public good, but it could also pose some serious ethical and other challenges. So as an example, the gene editing technology, focusing on germline gene editing, because that's where It's very contentious, but also touching upon somatic gene editing, because that's where a lot of clinical advances can happen in the coming years. And if you want these advances to translate to low-resource settings, you need to start thinking about these things in advance. So we realize now that this needs to be done in many different areas of technology that impact on health. So we have a group also looking at artificial intelligence and health. So I think that was the first big area of work, the, the forecasting capacities the horizon scanning and being able to respond in a way uh, that helps our member states, helps ministries of health to stay on top and to prepare for these new um, Mm. new methods and uh, which would would come in and impact. impact. The second main area of work, so the two goals for the science division, one was this staying ahead of the curve, the other was really providing a sort of a quality assurance um, mechanism or um, uh, uh, oversight of all that WHO produces. Because as you know, WHO is a normative agency and its guidelines are used by people all over the world. And so it's really important that you have that basic standard. And so we did not have that in the past. Every department was doing their own guidance and providing their own quality assurance. So that's now been centralized and so we provide that service and you could call it oversight we you know produce the sops we we sort of lay out the processes and how things should be done uh, and what we are calling global public health goods and and so for the first time again in the history of who we actually have an advanced planning process where every technical department anticipates what uh, public health goods they are going to produce they could be guidelines you know they could be they could be statistical documents data documents uh, other types of guidance, but all of them would go through uh, a certain amount of quality assurance and rigor based on you know, how com- complex the, the issue is. So these were the two major functions uh, behind the establishment of the Science Division and the Office of the Chief Scientist.
1: And when you talk about planning of those global goods, does that also mean a sort of coordinated approach to what the WHO considers is a priority in a in a particular yes. area
0: yes so that was a unique feature so if a, a technical department proposes a guideline on something x y the questions we ask is why is that a priority is there a demand for that and if so, sure, let's see the demand so we have you know as you know regional offices and country offices and so we have from bottom up we started collecting this demand and it was it was very informative because a lot of what was being proposed at headquarters was not considered high priority or very relevant by our country offices. So that is the first step of prioritization. The second, of course, is you know the World Health Assembly gives us mandates to do certain things. That's more at the global level. So there are global mandates given to us that we have to fulfill. So these are the two considerations really as for us to prioritize. And then during the planning of, of these global public health goods, we've put in place again an end-to-end process where the country offices are involved in, in the prioritization, but also in the review. And uh, get, they get involved also in the development of these uh, documents so that they're more relevant to, to country needs and also the format. So we're looking at how can we do computable guidelines? How can we do living guidelines?
1: When it comes to also, you know, deciding what guidelines to do, and if we look at uh, the the COVID-19 pandemic at the moment you know there are lots of questions around um antiretroviral treatment or what kind of oxygen support is uh, is needed and you know down to i don't know how to try and prevent transmission within a, within a hospital or, or anything like that and that needs to be based on good science obviously and at a time when that science is evolving and emerging and we've talked um on the podcast before about how how messy the picture is how how many small trials of say remdesivir or or chloroquine are are going on and there's a lack of um coordination in a way that allows that data to then be synthesized into a guideline quickly so i i just wonder um Is that something that you've seen and that you're concerned about? Um, And is there a way in which that kind of coordination could be um, given to to all those research efforts?
0: Yes, this is a very important issue because especially in this sort of situation, when we're in a pandemic, when we're in a desperate situation, um, people tend to clutch at straws and because everybody's desperate for some some relief. Now, the good thing I would say about this pandemic, starting from the very origins in China, is that we've had a lot of information and a lot of knowledge being generated, you know, right from the beginning. So even in the midst of all of that crisis in Wuhan, we had Chinese doctors and researchers publishing case series, you know, starting with case series, uh, and then clinical trials and epidemiological studies and investigations, and apart from all the genetic se- uh, sequencing data that was also being uh, put out, and that really, I think, helped us, got, gave us a head start in trying to understand what this new disease was. So I think it was extremely important. The downside, of course, is that the a number of the clinical trials that were conducted were either not randomized uh, clinical trials or they were too small to answer the primary uh, question. And so we see now proliferation of uh, a number of trials addressing uh, many of these different therapeutics that are being proposed for treatment. But unfortunately, not a single one of them has given us a clear answer to date. And that is why uh, in um, even early in February, the WHO had started thinking about launching a multi-country, large, randomized clinical trial to assess these putative um, therapeutic agents for treatment of COVID with with endpoints which have impact on public health. So a mortality endpoint and the duration of hospitalization and the need for critical care, because this is what we thought is very important rather than looking at virological outcomes, you know, at at, at which day the virus clears, etc. So this was in retrospect, a very good decision, I think, for us to move ahead, because what we see now today is that there are only a couple of clinical trials, like the Solidarity trial, also the, the recovery trial in the UK, which are likely to give answers because they're able to enroll enough patients, you know, to have the statistical power to answer those questions. So, It is really important also, I think, uh, thinking about research um, is to have some kind of a global consensus between the experts on what are the important research questions and what are the endpoints that should be used, particularly for these clinical trials, because otherwise then you end up not being able to compare. So uh, as an example, we have a number of small studies going on of corticosteroid treatments. Each one of them is designed a little differently with different endpoints. What we're hoping to do is to, is to have a central data safety committee which could actually pool the data from all of these different steroid trials and do an individual patient meta-analysis to be able to come up with a you know, more um, robust estimate of the effectiveness of corticosteroids. Um, similarly, for the prevention trials, uh, whether they are chemo prevention studies or vaccine trials, we are you know, trying to coordinate global dialogue on this so that we can have a consensus on the endpoints and also on, on the methods that should be used. We've heard a lot of discussion about human challenge studies. Could be one possible way of doing trials, but we have to be very careful mm. about proposing something like that without um, um, focusing on the ethical and safety aspects of such studies. And, and, the, and it's possible also to do vaccine trials in a conventional way but do them at a rapid in a, in a in a rapid time frame, and I think that's the sort of thing we're looking for, hoping that when the vaccine candidates start coming in during the summer, that we can have a trial setting up and running, so that we can start enrolling a solidarity trial for vaccines, is is what uh, we're planning at the moment. Mm. We um,
1: go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, that's amazing that we can do that so quickly in a pandemic and get that sort of uh, consensus. And, you know, people will look to the WHO in a an emergency for, for that kind of coordination. But we also know that for any um, pharmaceutical trial, there is a problem with choosing endpoints that actually matter to patients. You know, we published some research um about novel chemotherapy licensed in uh, in Europe through the EMA and you know virtually none of those trials had uh, endpoints of, of extended mortality they were all about you know some some biological measure instead there was very little quality of life in there so you know going forwards from this uh, that kind of it feels like it's really important to have that consensus and and perhaps a body to to, to To provide a mechanism for that consensus to happen. Um, What do you think the WHO should be doing beyond this pandemic?
0: Yes, in fact, you know, within the science division, one of the departments that's been established is a research for health department. The other two being the quality assurance of norms and standards and a digital health and innovation department, which is also very important. But so the research for health department aims to provide guidance and um, set policies on the conduct of research and on, on trying to promote research on priority areas to, to get global research funders to focus on those on those priorities but also to address the kind of issues you're talking about you know how do you design uh, the trials which will answer the right questions so that you're not wasting resources and uh, you're also saving time and helping patients so that's the kind of thing that we hope to be doing uh, of course now all our time is spent on COVID but um, that is actually a plan for the future to engage the research funders you know they they have this uh, uh, grouping called the, the heads of international research organizations and I sit on that body representing WHO and I think that's a very good opportunity for the heads of 30 of the world's largest research agencies to think about priorities and and how to fund the best research and and also how to do a better job of of um, ensuring that that national investigators investigators within countries are able to address the questions which are important for them mm. and not necessarily doing research uh, based on where the, the money is or where the funding is uh, and that's a shift that we'd like to see because over and over again we hear from researchers from the global south that they would love to do research on, on what they know are priorities for their own country or their own region but are limited by the kinds of funding and the kinds of uh, calls that are made by the by the big global research funders and so that's a, another area of uh, priority for us to bridge that gap yeah. and the third way we do this is, is working with what are called the PDPs, the Product Development Partnerships, where we started engaging with them to see what are the bottlenecks in the development of products, of health products, which most of the PDPs were set up to address the neglected diseases, mostly the communicable diseases. But we know today that there are many needs in a non-communicable disease space as well, which are not being addressed. And so one way the WHO can really shape this area is by focusing very upstream on defining what the needs and priorities are and developing what we call target product profiles for the kind of products we think are needed but which are currently missing. And this will help not only the public R&D funders but also the private sector and developers and entrepreneurs and innovators to, to, uh, to, to have a description of the kind of gaps there are uh, and the needs there are as they think about you know, developing their products. Mm. So those are the ways in which W WHO can shape the research landscape without necessarily doing the research ourselves. And as you rightly said, in emergencies, we may need to step in and do it. We did it for Ebola and we're doing it now for, for COVID. But as a routine, WHO is not an agency that you know does a lot of research by itself. So we, we promote and we shape and we foster and we prioritize and we bring people together. I think that's our strength.
1: Mm. One place you have done some research is on testing, which people have um, called a wild west out there. There are so many um, immunological tests for COVID, with wildly different sensitivity and specificity, and and ones which um, end up being fairly useless be- because of that. Now WHO stepped in and said, did some testing, said these these ones seem to be be useful. Um, But, you know, that then doesn't necessarily feed into regulation within individual countries or anything. Um, So I suppose it's after that research, there is still, when we've got some clear answers, potentially, there is still a gap between uh, what we know and the implementation of it as well. And um, uh, how do you think that needs to, to potentially, you know, be closed or, or be more international perhaps in its in its focus?
0: So I think the, the service that you're talking about is what we call pre-qualification. And we do that for drugs and diagnostics and for vaccines. And what it is, is it's a mark of quality on a product. And it's very useful for the global procurement bodies like Gavi, the Global Fund and UNICEF and so on, because they know that they can then procure Those products in large numbers because WHO has a mark of quality assurance. Mm. And this is mainly in in those cases where these products are being developed by companies which are outside the purview of the stringent regulatory authorities. Now, so so on the on the one side, it's very useful for the global procurement agencies. It's also very useful for countries who do not have strong regulatory bodies of their own. So then what they do is they procure WHO pre-qualified. products, again, because, you know, you can rely on them. Now, in terms of actually implementing it in countries, yes, that is a very important um, part of of the chain. And this is where there's sometimes a lot of delays, a lot of challenges, which need to be overcome. We have country offices in about 150 countries in the world, uh, mostly in the lower middle income countries. And there we have teams, again the teams vary in size from five people to 500 people, depending on the complexity of the country and the health issues there. But uh, that's where the work with the the country engagement and encouraging countries to adopt the guidelines and implement them uh, and, and provide these services to the people. And that's where things need to be sometimes adapted or modified to the country setting Uh, based on the resource availability, based on the capacity of the health system and so on. So, yes, so WHO's work goes all the way from developing the guidance and providing that normative uh, guidance and all the way down to the actual implementation. And um, it's interesting you ask this question because one of the areas we've identified for further strengthening is actually at that level, at the implementation level, to see how can we as WHO do better in terms of a faster and more efficient implementation of the guidance, because we know guidance can sometimes take five to 10 years to get implemented in countries. And we want to shorten that time. And in fact, research plays a role there as well, because it's what we call implementation research, implementation science, where you know what has to be done, but then you're trying to figure out which particular context. And so some of our departments have been very good at that. They've done implementation research with countries engaging ministries of health who then see for themselves that a particular uh, a, a particular strategy or a guideline is actually improving uh, the health care of the populations or, uh, and then they, they put it into policy for the whole country. So that's another space for research to fill the gap between a guideline and actually becoming policy and practice in a country. Mm.
1: And um. Just finally on that, I mean, there isn't a mechanism where, say, there was uh, a test that that came out to be the best one, um, that 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 could be shared equitably amongst all of the countries that would want to to um, potentially buy that test. You know, there there isn't a um, a sort of central. Way of 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 organising that distribution, and that must make that decision or that that you know that implementation particularly difficult for for the WHO um, when you're trying to think internationally as opposed to you know just within a a single country's borders.
0: Yes, this is another important area where WHO has a, a strong role to play, and particularly for this pandemic now, we've been thinking about. How are we going to deal with the situation where you have either a drug or a a new vaccine that's found to be efficacious and safe and not enough doses for the whole world, um, at least initially? So we have put together a group to start thinking about this. I mean, we've had a lot of experience in this space. We've done this with stockpiles for cholera and and yellow fever. um, and, and other medications which have been scarce. And we've had to think of strategies of how you prioritize the one the people who need it the most and where it can have the most uh, benefit. Um, and then you can have tiers of expansion, uh, starting with, with those who really need it the most or the most vulnerable, and then you go beyond that. So for COVID, this needs, there needs to be a global conversation on this and a consensus, I think, between countries but also the manufacturers because what we are hoping will happen is that we will have a lot of the manufacturers or all of them if possible commit to a global supply pool or a global procurement pool that would then procure and distribute based on the needs not based on how, who can pay and how much they can pay but based on where the disease burden is highest and and within countries Who are the vulnerable groups? So one would say intuitively that healthcare workers should be prioritized as perhaps the first frontline healthcare workers and other frontline care providers as perhaps the first recipients of a new vaccine for COVID. This could be followed perhaps by elderly and other people who have special uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, So if we can get that kind of a consensus and develop a framework for fair allocation, that's something we're working on right now. And hope to have done in the next couple of weeks so that when we have a vaccine coming out, we hope that this is a system that will be used um, and not a system where uh, the vaccine goes to the country of manufacture or countries who can pay, because that would be terribly unfair. But all the signs and signals I see during this pandemic point me to the first option that is an uh, opportunity for for global solidarity and, and equity. And so I'm quite optimistic that we will find a way of being able to protect those who are most vulnerable, with the goal of course of protecting everybody eventually. But for that you're going to need billions of doses of the vaccine. Mm. And it takes some time.
1: Yes. That's um it sounds technically difficult and and politically tricky um to to pull that together
0: yes but then you know we've seen um, uh, a lot of signals um, from both from private sector and from member states that are actually promoting uh, this kind of uh, uh, approach because in this particular disease i think we have to remember that Nobody's safe unless till everyone is safe, because you cannot live with closed borders. And so if there's disease in some part of the world, sooner or later, it's going to catch up. So it's really in everybody's interest to see that the pandemic eventually is finished, is controlled with protecting everybody who needs it. So I think that's something that probably brings people together as a common thread, um, recognizing that Unless we agree to share equitably, we're not going to come out of this situation.
1: Great. Well, Dr. Nathan, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me. Thank you. So that was Sumya Swaminathan, WHO's Chief Scientist. If you're interested in this kind of thing, then you should listen to our Talk Evidence podcast weekly at the moment, where we're trying to give you an insight into the evidence being created around coronavirus. And that's particularly fascinating given the amount of attention it's receiving, but also the fact that we're starting from almost zero when it comes to our understanding of the disease. And it's an opportunity to examine that mechanism in action. And we're trying to help you do that. The next episode of Talk Evidence is out tomorrow and we'll be looking at how new big data methods can really help speed up that process of discovery. Now, this has been a long-term aspiration for some for the NHS's data, and this emergency has given the impetus needed to start pulling that all together. So, check that out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. That's it for this episode. Until tomorrow, I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia Editor for the BMJ.